I drove today delivering groceries up in San Rafael. And although it went quite smoothly, I have to admit it takes more out of me than I than I would have thought. It's certainly not any mental power, but just physical. I mean, in and out of the car. Getting old. I, uh, I wanted to read a couple things. The first is from Bob Lefsitz, who uh, I've mentioned before. He, he writes a, a news a newsletter almost daily about the music business and the past and the Beatles, and he has interviews with people. He's, he's a good writer. I like him. I, I can relate. He talks about when... Ooh, the rice is done. Shoot. Well, do I keep recording? No. Okay, so um, I took a break to go turn off the rice. I came back and started recording again. And I finished the recording. And then I remembered that I one key part of this this particular episode I, I didn't mention. I drove down to Palo Alto yesterday. I took a friend to a doctor's appointment and uh, dropped her off. And I was about five minutes from a house I lived in, in, uh, well, Palo Alto, of course. And we live next door to the Children's Library and a park called Rinconada Park and my school, Walter Hayes School. And there was a swimming pool that I used to go swim at every single day. And uh, it was a wonderful place to be. And it was the house we lived in when my father's book, uh, The Earthship, The Sky Burned, was published. And became a bestseller. And our lives changed. And uh, dramatically, I've talked about it before. So I I was going to go have some coffee and, you know, um, you know, do some stuff on the computer and uh, I, but I realized, realized how close I was to the old place. So I thought I'd go check it out. I went and looked at it. Um, boy, it's different. They've totally remodeled it. I mean, additions and, you know, this and that. I mean, it's just a different house. And, uh, but the children's library is still there. I went back in the magic, in the, in the they had a garden that was enclosed, and it was never open when I when we lived there. I used to climb over the wall, of course, to it, and to me it was like the magic secret garden. I mean, just I don't know. It was funny. I that's how I remember it. I, there's a picture of it I've um, included with this podcast. But the funny thing is, it's much bigger now than it was. I can see, um, you know, what they you know what they did. I mean, they took out some stuff and. There's a building gone, and there's a gazebo and all this stuff. But it was really fun to go there. But I, what I, what I do remember also is uh, 31 years ago, um, almost exactly, driving around the house. I'd my, been kicked out of my house. Uh, you know, my family. Um, I was still drinking, and I was driving to all the houses that that I uh, grew up in, lived in as we grew up, because it's my dad's 
you know, fortunes improved. We moved to bigger houses and stuff. And I remember getting to this place and walking out in the middle of the park and looking around. And it was like the, not a voice from the sky, but a thought entered my head, which it was like as crystal clear, loud, like a thunderbolt or whatever, thunderclap. And it was you, this was the last place you were happy. And it was, yeah, it was really quite jolting. Now, I'm happy now. I was not happy then. I was, you know, it's the end of my end of my drinking. I've been been on the grind. You know, that was that was like 30 years. I mean, 30 years from the time we lived there. So anyway, just, you know, it's the place holds a special meaning for me it was in some ways a wonderful place i mean not in some ways a lot of ways it was just a wonderful place i I saw the principal of the school walter hayes school at my father's memorial in 1974 (laughs) and he said i always looked forward to your visits (laughs) to my office you know because i'd you know make some kind of trouble and uh, get sent to the office so anyway so now, now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Okay. The rice can rest for a few minutes. I took it off the heat. Anyway, left sets is good. I mean, not for everybody. My son thinks he's a you know boomer idiot, which he probably is, but he does talk about the days when music was everything. And I can relate, because I remember those days. Not anymore, but... Anyway, he wrote this the other day. Getting old is weird in ways they never told you about. Sure, you regret the time you wasted. And you know so much more, but nobody wants to listen to you. But the most revelatory thing is you just don't care. It happens almost overnight. Suddenly you realize all those games people play, the so-called winners and losers, they no longer give you a shot of adrenaline. You're no longer invested. You know at the end of the day they're irrelevant. And on one hand you feel empty because the secret of life has been exposed to you and no one cares. And on the other You feel liberated, and the truth is you can fight this feeling, but you can never beat it. It's something in the bones, in the DNA. You hit a certain point, and your perspective changes no matter what you did previously. The funniest thing is seeing all, seeing people try to hold on to what they had, fearful of looking bad, not knowing that nobody is really paying any attention anymore. Not that you can't achieve in your old age, Elizabeth Strout published her first book, Amy and Isabel, in 1998 when she was 42. Her age, her experience have given her wisdom, and she writes so well about it. The odd, the disenfranchised, the different, which so many of us are, even though we might try to hide it. And he goes on talking about her book, her books, which I'm going to check out, actually. But, um, yeah, he's right. I mean, you know, I think about it. I mean, uh, I still want to accomplish things. And, of course, I still, 
you know, have this idea of finding an audience for my music, that's not going to go away. And I have this book I'm working on, and I want to get it published and out there. It's beautiful, just amazing. Um, the iPhone photography book is going to be a big book. I've got about half of it built, and every time I add another artist work into there, you know, I, I'm more, you know, I have more confidence in the project, and I'm, you know, trying to, you know, find a publisher now. But anyway, but I was thinking about which uh, we just passed the fiftieth anniversary of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. That the official publication date was. November 10, 1971, the first installment in, in Rolling Stone magazine. And that happened to be my 21st birthday. And, you know, I, I like to say that, you know, the sev- my 70s were based on three major uh, cultural landmarks. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter Thompson, the movie A Clockwork Orange, and then, of course, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that was it. That was, that was the template for my 70s. And, uh, but... Um, yeah, I always feel bad for Hunter Thompson. You know, he was a, you know, pretty, you know, total alcoholic. He really didn't do much after about the 70s. He really he was just a kind of, you know, he was totally drugged out. I knew people that had to babysit him when he was working at the at the examiner in the 80s. And I mean, they'd sit there all night waiting for another page to come through on the machine for his weekly column. And it would just it'd take all night. And then they'd try to piece it together into a you know column. He was enabled by many, many people. They just wanted, you know, Dr. Gonzo. And uh, he ended up killing himself like, you know, so many people I know who were talented and wonderful and just couldn't see their way out. But um, I wanted to read an excerpt from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas that just I never forget. I always come back to, where is it? Here it is. It's near the end. Strange memories on this nervous night in Las Vegas. Five years later, six, it seems like a lifetime, or at least a main era, the kind of peak that never comes again. San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. Maybe it meant something. Maybe not in the long run. But no explanation. No mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of time and the world, whatever it meant. History is hard to know because of all the hired bullshit. But even without being sure of history, it seems entirely reasonable to think that every now and then, the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long, fine flash for reasons that nobody really understands at the time, and which never explain in retrospect what actually happened. 
My central memory of that time seems to hang on one or five or maybe 40 nights or very early mornings when I left the Fillmore half crazy and instead of going home, aimed the big 650 lightning across the Bay Bridge at 100 miles an hour, wearing L.L. Bean shorts and a Butte sheepherder's jacket, booming through the Treasure Island Tunnel at the lights of Oakland and Berkeley and Richmond, not quite sure which turnoff to take when I got to the other end, always stalling at the toll gate, too twisted to find neutral as I fumbled for change. Now, that was back then. You you had to pay the toll going both ways. I remember that. But being absolutely certain that no matter which way I went, I would come to a place where people were just as high and wild as I was. No doubt at all about that. There was madness in any direction at any hour, if not across the bay, then up the Golden Gate or down 101 to Los Altos or La Honda. You could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense sense of whatever we were doing was right and that we were winning. And I think that was the handle the sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil, not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting on our side or theirs. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. You know, I think about that and where we are today. It did seem like that at the time. We didn't know what we were up against, and we're still up against. In fact, they're, they're more assembled and more powerful and more focused than ever. They coalesced around Donald Trump. It's the same people every time. It's crazy. We have to beat them back every 50 or 100 years. I, I think we'll, I mean, I'm optimistic we'll do it this time, but again, but man, you never know. See, they, they kill. They kill people. They have no compunction about it. I've often wondered how scared Democrats have been of them since you know they killed John Kennedy and everybody else. I don't know. But that's one reason I keep doing what I'm doing, this, this silly little podcast and my music and my the books. and I mean, everything I do is aimed at trying to keep that Spirit alive, because I do believe it meant something. And it won't get washed away by some marketers or some jerk-offs at Facebook or Instagram. As much as they want to they ruin everything with you know, their algorithms and their data mining and everything like that. And, you know, just want to try, hoping to just pass it on. A little bit. What little I know and have seen and have done. That's about it. But <laughs> like Bob Lefset says, you know, you know this 
and you know, you also know that nobody cares. Um, I assume you care a little bit or you wouldn't have listened this far. So I want to thank you uh, seriously for listening this far to me. I hope you've subscribed to this and I hope also, you know, I mean, this podcast somewhere and, you know, my newsletter and my website, knoxbronson.com, weekly newsletter. Please do. Uh, no, I think i got to take the rice over to Maya's. We're, we're all going to have some yummy lamb chops and stuff. Uh, this is Knox riding the wild bubble with you forever. <laughs> <laughs>